from a military misdiagnosis to discovering his natural talents with OMM, Dr. Alexander Snyder shares his journey through medicine after having no real exposure to anybody in medicine and after a diagnosis that forced him out of the military, he stumbled into his natural talent of using OMM to treat patients. If it felt a desire to teach and treat the entire patient as a whole, utilizing OMM to help the body restore itself. Please enjoy the story. Welcome everyone. I'm Dr. Amanda Robinson, filling in for Dr. Green while he studies for his level three board exam. I'm a PGY2 in the same program as him, the MSU Osteopathic Neuromuscleskeletal Medicine Residency. I thought I would chip in and continue the discovery of what OMT can do as witnessed by clinicians in their practice. Our guest today is Dr. Alex Snyder. Thank you so much for being here and taking time out of your busy schedule and sharing your story and answering a few of my questions. Happy to help. Awesome. So a little background on Dr. Schneider is that he received his doctorate from Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine and completed the Sparrow Family Medicine Residency along with a plus one year at our program at MSU OMM. He has volunteered often to educate undergrads about OMM and doing demonstrations and lives with his beautiful family. And I don't think you're living in Mason anymore. Where are you living now? <laughs> no, we're down in Stevensville, Michigan now. And then can you tell us a little bit about your job you have now? Yeah, so now I work at a primary care clinic uh, in Niles, Michigan. It is a federally qualified health center, an FQHC. Uh, the intent behind these facilities is specifically to serve underserved populations and take care of the people who really can't see doctors other places. So Medicaid, Medicare, uh, no insurance, really, really bad insurance, no money, all that stuff. So we see uh, just about anybody who wants to come in can come in more or less. Wow, that is great. All right. So before we dive into you kind of telling your story about how you became a DO and, and using OMT, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, like your hobbies that you like to do outside of medicine? Yeah. So I've been involved in martial arts off and on through most of my life. Um, mm. Trying to get back into martial arts again now that I've finished residency and I'm only working one job. I <laughs> um, uh, started trying to pick up uh, sword and shield fighting just for fun. Lift weights with my kids. The kids are all determined to be stronger than me someday. So <laughs> teaching them how to lift weights and playing with them at the various parks and the beach we have here on this side. Um, my wife's family's down here. So just being around family has been great. So pretty much, uh, Lifting weights, violent stuff, and hanging out with the kids, I guess, is what I do 90% of the time. That sounds great. Are you still <laughs> doing the uh, the blacksmithing? Uh, I, I'm trying to get into that. I found, I actually have a few people, and it's hilarious you mentioned that. I found a guy incidentally donating stuff uh, who owns a forge, and he has a nine-month-old daughter. He We had a swing we donated. So this dude came by and picked up a swing. Turns out he's got a kid around our age, and... He, uh, we just started talking. He's got a blacksmith forge and he's invited me over. I found another guy who makes custom knife handles. Wow. Um, so his whole business is just customizing knives. So I hilariously wind up, wound up finding people that have my interest on accident that we're going to start trying to work together this summer. It's, I mean, it's just another form of violence, right? I'm hitting steel <laughs> with a hammer to make it do what I want. All right. Do you recommend any books? 
Uh, I am a hilariously underread osteopath. So if you're asking for books in OMM, no, because I don't really have a lot to say about those. Outside of that, um, I read the, I mean, the Re Wheel of Time series was good. Anything by Gene Wolfe, who's a sci-fi author. Uh, he's one of the original greats in sci-fi. He's the inspiration for just monumental amounts of people. Um, there's a book I'm reading... Oh, I forgot the title. Oh, here it is. It's called On Looking by Alexandra Horowitz. It's uh, She goes for walks around her city block with various experts in their field and just like looks at the world around them through the eyes of an expert. So an architect, a historian. Uh, one of the times she has her kiddo, her little two-year-old, walk around with her and buying stuff around the block that she never recognized was there despite living there. It's a really interesting book about mindfulness and seeing things from a different perspective. Uh, absolutely would recommend it to anybody who's interested. Very enjoyable. Great. Uh, do you have any movies or documentaries that you would recommend? Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> again, going back to martial arts in my life, uh, there's an old Christian Bale movie that was straight to DVD. You wouldn't think Christian Bale straight to DVD, but there it is nonetheless, called Equilibrium. <laughs> uh, Equilibrium. It's a... Uh, it was a fantastic movie. My friend and I found it on cheap movie night. We'd get together and rent $1 movies back when movie rentals were a thing. <laughs> and uh, just sit around on the couch for a couple hours watching these awful movies. Just awful. And we found Equilibrium on accident. And it was a genuinely good movie. So it's just people don't seem to know about it. And it was quite good. And it had some interesting commentary on war and psych health. And it's deeper than you think when you first hear about it. Oh, all right. Sounds cool. So let's start digging into how or when did you decide to head toward DO school? Yeah. Um, so that came late in life. Uh, well, later than most. I uh, had started off life planning to join the military. Um, I was actually getting set up to go to West Point. I'd met General Anchors, who is the gentleman. He was the retired general who brings you before the admission board uh, I talked to a congressman. They had agreed to write me a letter. I just had to meet him and shake his hand, and he was going to give me a letter to go to West Point. Uh, and then I got injured. I injured my back, uh, was misdiagnosed, missed the herniated disc that was causing steady nerve damage. Oh, man. So by the time that got figured out, I wasn't able to serve the military anymore. So I decided I was going to be a teacher. And then while in undergrad, I was hanging out with the pre-med students in our various science classes. I was going to teach uh, chemistry and biology and uh, I was hanging out with all these pre-med students and I was like kind of in the middle of the pack like I was smarter than some of them I was dumber than some of the others you know <laughs> kind of like towards the middle of the pack and I'm like well hey if a bunch of these dudes think they can be a doctor maybe I should look into that medicine had everything I liked about teaching you know it's the, the education the drive to help improve people in their lives and give them tools they need to make things better for themselves and because as a physician, you get a little bit more respect and authority, I thought I could have a stronger impact on the population I was interested in the most, which was teens and young adults, like, you know, figured 12 to early 20s was kind of the population I wanted to work with. And as a doctor, they'll listen to me better than they listen to their teacher. <laughs> uh, so I decided to go to medicine. Um, and while in medic, I applied to to two schools because I couldn't afford the application. So I applied at the very end of the cycle in December, right before those applications closed. I was working two jobs in undergrad, trying to make my way through. 
So I had to apply to the cycle at the very end. Uh, I applied to one MD school and one DO school, and it okay. took everything I had in my account to pay for the application. Uh, so it drained my entire bank to pay to apply to medical school. And then uh, I got into MSU Com on a guaranteed wait list. So they said, we'll take you. We don't have room in this class, uh, but you're for sure in next year. And then if somebody cancels, you get in now. Nobody canceled. Uh, so I worked three jobs between undergrad and medical school and then started medical school. Okay. Um, while I was there, uh, we were started doing these OMM courses. I'd read the osteopathic philosophy and that I, I resonated with that. And I'm like, yeah, taking care of the whole person, this musculoskeletal stuff. That sounds really cool. That's all I knew. I didn't have any doctors in my life. I didn't know any physicians. My mom was an associate's degree RN. Like, there was no real anything going on there. I just went. Okay. And then while there, we did OMM. And I'm like, hey, this is pretty rad. And I like what we're doing. And I had some kind of natural skill at it to some degree. I'm not saying that I'm awesome, but I picked it up faster than the other people in my class. And it seemed to make more sense to me than it did to my classmates. Maybe it's from all the martial arts and stuff I did. I don't know, but it made sense. So I just leaned into it. Um, I talked to my wife about it, and she uh, she decided she wanted me to be good at it because she wanted me to fix her all the time at home. <laughs> so every time I came home from school, she'd ask me, what'd you learn in OMM today? And we'd practice, and she put up with all my early hits and misses on treatments and HVLA and all Aww. the things I did wrong. <laughs> But she, nice had, of her. <laughs> she helped me practice every just about every day trying to get better at it. So, so I just kept you... learning and improving and eventually decided to go into it professionally. Okay. Now, did you, when you applied to the MD school and the DO school, did you, besides that little bit of information that you had uh, about whole, you know, treating the whole person, was there any other distinguishing factors between the two? Um, no, MSU was in Michigan and I had family nearby. Okay. That was, uh, I should, I should have been clear. I'm sorry. Both schools were MSU. I applied to the MSU MD and DO school because oh, okay. I, I could, I only had enough money to apply to those, to those two. That was it. It's all the money I had. Okay. Um, I so I just picked the one that had family nearby and hoped. Okay. So, okay. So you're going in, you're doing OMM lab and you're, you're really liking it. You're going to utilize it. How was your third and fourth year? Uh, it was interesting. Third and fourth year is really easy to lose your skill if you're not careful and, frankly, kind of aggressive about it. Um, I had the good fortune of being at a McLaren as a base hospital, which was local to MSU. It was traditionally a osteopathic hospital that was recently purchased by McLaren, you know, within the last 10 years. Uh, at the time, it had been purchased by McLaren, the larger health system. So a lot of the people still remembered the osteopaths. So even the MDs were like, oh, yeah, you do OMM? Cool, go ahead. And they'd see I was a DO and ask, and I said, yeah, I do a lot of it. And they'd be like, great. Tell us if you think you see something relevant. Um, so I was very supported on most of my third and fourth year rotations just because they were familiar with it and even if they didn't really think OMM would do anything useful, they knew it didn't hurt and patients seemed to appreciate it. If for no other reason than someone was paying attention and making an effort on their behalf. Yeah. I like to think that I did more than just make an effort, but obviously 
I was a third year student. Let's not get too excited about my skills. <laughs> okay. Um, but they were they were open to me doing it. So I just kept putting myself out there. And there was a few of them who had no idea what it was. And I uh, showed them how to, I kind of treated something on their body. And they were like, oh, yeah, that's fine. Go Go see somebody. So because I was just, I was really purposeful and seeking out opportunities, advertising OMM, trying to figure out when I could do it, I was lucky enough that it was accepted by the people I worked with and sometimes encouraged. Okay. How did you advertise it? Like what was your, you know, that elevator speech that everybody talks about where you just feel what OMM is? What did you tell those people? Yeah. So my, the semi-standard pitch I have now is that, you know, I, I do something called OMM, osteopathic manipulative medicine. Sometimes you'll see it called OMT, osteopathic manipulative treatment or therapy. There's a bunch of words. It all means the same thing. What we're going to do, what I'm going to do, is look at the muscles, the bones, the joints, see if things are lined up and moving the way that they're supposed to move, and if they're not, try to help encourage them to go back to that normal pattern of motion. I'm not necessarily telling their body to do something that's so much as I'm encouraging it to do what it wants to do or helping it to do what it wants to do naturally. Um, and I don't push particularly hard in the hospital. I don't do HVLA 90% of the time. I won't do any cracking, snapping, just gentle manipulation, pushing, prodding, pulling on muscles, working with their breathing, trying to help them get better as best I can without doing anything too aggressive. For most of them, that was enough. Occasionally they'd ask more say, well, if you've ever been to a chiropractor or seen a physical therapist, I do a lot of the stuff that they do, and there's some stuff that I do that they don't, and there's some stuff that they do that I don't, but we have a lot of the same training. So if that's something you're comfortable or familiar with, then, you know, it's it's largely related to what I'll be doing. Okay. And that seemed to get just about everybody satisfied. So it, did you get the question then, you know, how are you different from a chiropractor? Frequently, frequently. Yeah. How did you answer that one? Uh, we have different training and we have different focus. We're physicians first and foremost. We are doctors trained in the medical model. Uh, perhaps we have some additional other leanings in non-traditional medicine, but at our core, our training is that of a physician. And then we also receive additional training in the musculoskeletal side. So where a chiropractor is looking generally for subluxations, as they call them, and how to crack something to get it back. I'm not necessarily focusing on just the bone or just the spine. I'm looking more at what is, what's not working the way that it ought to in the body compared to its normal function, and what can I do to help the body recover in the way that it would normally heal itself if we left it alone and they were otherwise healthy. My focus is not treating the problem. It's helping their body restore its normal activity to do what it wants to do anyway. That's great. Yeah, that that's really that's a nice kind of condensed little speech there. Um, so, all right. So you did third and fourth year. How did you decide to go towards family medicine? Uh, I was pretty confident that's what I wanted to do from the beginning of medical school. Um, the age population I wanted to work with, like I said, the younger teens, adult, young adults, even into their 30s. And I worked in assisted living homes for a while before I applied to medical school. Well, it was one of the jobs I had in undergrad. So I enjoyed working with the elderly, did a lot of incidental hospice work just because our residents were elderly and sick and a lot of them died. Um, so I got very comfortable being around the old and frail and dying. And that was 
everything family medicine did. Um, I wanted to be involved in sports teams, young high school sports teams, because we didn't really have an athletic trainer or anybody when I was a kid growing up. And I remember being misdiagnosed and told I just had a pulled muscle by a chiropractor I'd seen. Um, so I just thought about all that and like, man, if there had been a physician or someone who knew what to do, maybe I could have saved my career. Maybe I could have saved the, you know, I'm on 20 some odd years of nerve damage in my leg now. Maybe I could have avoided that. Yeah. Um, wow. My life has turned out pretty well anyway. Please don't misunderstand. <laughs> I am, I'm in a pretty good spot in life, even accounting for all of those things. So it worked out okay. But if I had a young person who maybe didn't have the abilities or some of the prospects that I was able to get into who had that injury, maybe I could help him sooner. And as a family doc, I could do all that. Um, so at one point I was looking at neurology as a way of getting into sports medicine, but neurosports is a whole different thing. Um, looked at PM&R for the same idea, but PM&R has a very different focus. There's a running joke that even PM&R doesn't know what they do. I don't really think that's the case, but it does make <laughs> me chuckle. For the record, guys, PM&R docs are awesome. If you get a chance, yeah. <laughs> you should absolutely spend time with them. Um, I have yet to meet a PM&R doc I didn't like, and I mean that sincerely. They're a great batch of people. Um, so I'd looked at PM&R, and then uh, it just didn't really do what I wanted, so I went to family medicine. I, it does everything I wanted to do and, and more. I, I've delivered babies. I've worked in hospice. I've taken care of the young teenager who was you know, my suicidal 12-year-old the other day. Um, you don't. It's not like any other field of medicine. And I, I just really, really enjoy it. That's awesome. Now, when you were looking to do the family medicine residencies, did you apply to the ones that were family medicine and OMM or just the family medicine? Or was that even an option then? Yeah. So at the time, there were a small number of family medicine OMM residencies in Michigan. Um, as a first or second year student, I had actually found Dr. Goldman and Dr. Grunwald, who were the program directors at uh, on the east side in Detroit. The name of the hospital has changed. I can't recall what it is now. And Metro over in Grand Rapids. And I actually kind of stalked them both at Convo and uh, introduced myself as like a first or second year student. I can't even remember now. Wow. And then kept in touch with them through into third year intermittently. So they both uh, gave me interviews. Um, and then I applied to Sparrow, which was also integrated plus one with MSU at the time. And then a couple other non OMM programs that were osteopathic programs, uh, but were strictly family medicine. That would be uh, down in Jackson and then McLaren Lansing. Uh, the end of it, my, I had four interviews. Uh, my application wasn't the best. I struggled with boards. Um, I take comfort in the fact that the evidence pretty clearly states board scores don't reflect clinical performance, but as a student, that didn't matter because you're looking to get a job. It doesn't really matter what the evidence is. You need to match. Right. So yeah. I only, I had only a small number of interviews because my board scores were not good, not good to straight up garbage, depending on how you look at it. Aww. So I got, uh, I got four interviews. I met, I ranked all four programs. And then I had the incredibly good fortune of matching at my number one program in Sparrow. Um, awesome. I'm very, very fortunate. 
And so that was the Sparrow one. Was that like the MSU own the family in Omen? Oh, I'm sorry. That... Yeah. So they were they existed as an integrated program. Um, apparently, of all of the applicants they had, only two of us expressed interest in the FM OMM program. And I was the only one who had specifically said that I would be ranking the program at the top of my list because I was. Right. Um, so Dr. Olson, the program director, said if there's only two people interested and one of and there's only one who's really saying he's going to rank us, I'm going to pull that spot and advertise for a strict FM instead. So instead of having nine and one, they would have a, a full 10 and just FM. And uh, pulled the integrated OMM piece out of it. Uh, and then MSU decided to continue their plus one separately. I see. Okay. So you finished your family medicine residency. Did you work some or did you go straight into the, the plus one? Yeah. So I graduated and went straight to the plus one. It's actually really funny. I missed Dr. Zakin's phone call. Uh, I was working uh, FM and I was also working in urgent care on the side. So I was doing six or seven days a week, pretty much every week. Oh, wow. um, yeah, I, I did a lot. <laughs> I was trying to make money for my family. So uh, I missed his phone call. I didn't even show up on my phone. It didn't alert my voicemail, anything. So I just happened to check my voicemail three days later and got Dr. Zakin's message that I was being offered the spot on the plus one. I think I called him at like nine or nine thirty at night oh wow <laughs> like dr zakin i'm sorry i missed your phone call i'd like the job please <laughs> and he just kind of laughed he said well hi alex i'm glad to hear from you too <laughs> actually so i think in true dr zakin style i think he said well hello dr schneider it's nice to hear from you yes <laughs> um <laughs> but uh yeah i i had missed the phone call and he was he had been patient and waiting for me and hadn't called the other person yet he was going to give me a week he said but I called back in time. Some, I think some people aren't, they don't quite know what a plus one year is. Oh, yeah. Could you explain kind of in how you viewed it? Yeah. So in uh, traditional residency style, there's the there's residency and then your other options after graduating residency are finding a job, going to a second residency or doing a fellowship. Uh, fellowship generally is subspecialist training, like FM goes to gerontology, OB, uh, section, uh, surgical care, uh, stuff like that. And the other options would be like a second residency in occupational health. Uh, MSU's plus one program is a second residency, not a fellowship. So instead of a subspecialty in the field, you actually gain another specialty in addition to your primary, in my case, family medicine. Okay. Um, so we did strictly OMM for that year at an accelerated pace. So instead of like for you guys, the initially in intern year, you start off with 60 or 80 minute visits and then those get cut down and you have traditional rotations you're doing over time, your appointment slots get smaller and you become faster. They said, all right, you're here, you're working clinic every single day, 30 minute slots go. Wow. Um, new patient, new patients were 40 returning patients were 30. I believe I can't remember now. It's only been seven months and I've already forgot what my schedule was. <laughs> That's okay. Um, I just see 20 minute slots. That's all I see now. Anyway. So as a second residency, we just jumped straight into strictly OMM all of the time, no additional rotations and an accelerated clinic schedule. 
similar to what we would be expected to do as an attending. And you just go and you just do it. And then you have to see, oh, 1,200. I think I had to have 1,200 OMM encounters or something. Uh, a fairly hefty number. There's certain criteria you have to meet, same as any other traditional residency. The plus one year, um, you don't have to see quite as many as a full three-year residency, but that's with the expectation that you've been doing OMM in your prior residency before coming to the plus one year, which I had seen hundreds of people already. So it wasn't quite as intrusive to me, but I, we still had to see a pretty hefty number and meet criteria to graduate on time. Yeah, and I was what? Sorry, go ahead. Oh, you're okay. Um, MSU specifically was confident that they could pull it off in a year because of their patient volume, where other programs had debated doing a two-year second residency to make sure that pay people had enough time to get their numbers in. Now, that's an ongoing conversation. Some programs really don't like, some traditional osteopathic physicians, OMM docs, really don't like that a plus one exists. Um, I've heard comments about it's kind of insulting to their training that some random family doc can get the same qualifications in a year. You know, I talked to Dr. Braden and Dr. Allen about it, and Dr. Braden, in his very typical blunt fashion, said, yeah, I think it's bullshit, but then you see people like Dr. Lisa, who's a rock star, so obviously there's something to it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering how the transition from a family medicine residency, you know, doing, like, family medicine stuff, and then going into an OMM specific res residency, like how that transition would be. And I was pretty comfortable with it. Um, yeah. I was, it's, it might be different for me from other people. It just depends on how you did things. I was the OMM guy in my clinic anyway. Okay. Um, other residents sent me their patients for OMM. I would do OMM in the middle of encounters that they had come in for other things and it seemed relevant. Um, so I'd been integrating OMM for a while anyway. So for me, it was just going from FM to strictly OMM was in some ways easier because OMM is comparatively narrower, not to say it has a narrow scope of practice, but compared to family practice, it's a little bit less broad. Right. Um, so it was a little easier because I didn't have to really talk to them about their depression, their uncontrolled diabetes, their high blood pressure. You know, I didn't, my focus wasn't necessarily on their weight. It was like, okay. What's hurting? Why is it hurting? What are you doing that's making it hurt? What can we do to fix it? Okay. So did you find during that one year that you were missing your family medicine style or? I was still in the urgent care. Um, okay. I worked the urgent care the whole time I was in the MSU residency as well. So I still had a lot of primary care-esque activity on the side. You know, again, doing six to seven days a week, most of the most days of the month or most weeks of the month for that whole year. Um, so I still did a lot of family care esque stuff. Okay. So it worked out for me pretty well. I didn't, I didn't, I don't feel like I really missed much or lost anything, thankfully. Okay. How much OMM do you think you're doing in your clinic now? Uh, probably about 20%, maybe a little bit more. Okay. Are you making like special appointments for them or? <laughs> Sorta. Okay. So my medical director, Doctor uh, Pazderka, is very—he's a MD, trained MD. Didn't know OMM existed. Learned about it while he was in school, and he—he he was like, "Oh man, I kind of would have wish I would have known about this. I would have gone to DO school instead." So he's very interested in what I'm doing. Um, I treated his shoulder once, and 
apparently fixed a chronic problem that he'd had for years. He had a bicep, he had a uh, hypertonic left bicep and long head was just stuck. So I treated that and apparently it fixed his, fixed his arm a whole bunch. So now he sends me his patients all the time. Awesome. (laughs) He asked me about it and I have, I've had some interesting cases. Um, So I have occasional where they send me the patient specifically. My colleagues will send me their patient I'll have a follow-up appointment for someone I've already seen. We're trying to figure out how to schedule it properly. My schedule filled significantly faster than they were expecting. Uh, After about three months, my schedule was full most of the time, which wasn't supposed to happen. I don't mind, but they were, that was not the intent. Mm, Um, So they're trying to figure out how to integrate and how to get more OMM slots. Um, Dr. Pazderka is he has found so much benefit for his patients so far from just me uh, that he's actually trying to figure out if they can swing hiring a full-time OMM doc in addition to me to just do OMM in the clinic full-time. Oh, wow. Because we're pretty sure that as soon as we advertise, I could fill my schedule with nothing but musculoskeletal pain within a couple of months. And I got to tell you, from the population I see, that's probably true. There is a huge, huge need down here in a population that really doesn't have anybody else. I mean, for a lot of our patients, we're it. And uh, there's nobody doing musculoskeletal medicine. I think it's, I I know I'm wandering off topic a touch, but. You're okay. I think it's really easy for us to forget how poor the training in musculoskeletal medicine is for the vast majority of people in medicine. I mean, I have my colleagues showing me their x-rays and they can't, they can barely look at the x-ray and figure out what's what. And I'm telling them, oh, yeah, a little bit of arthritis here. They got that there. Just having spent time with our radiology department, MSU, and learning over their shoulder, and I am by no means a radiologist. Again, please don't misunderstand my claims. I am not a radiologist. <laughs> there is a huge amount that I don't know in that field. But for some of the common things, apparently what little education I have is significantly more than most of my colleagues I'll start talking about hypertonic muscularity or facilitated sections and inhibited sections and low back pain that's x-ray negative. That's probably because their sacrum is stuck and they're just not walking the right way. And my colleagues have no idea what I'm talking about. And then I treat somebody and they can see them get better. And they're like, well, that was voodoo. Good job. I'll send them to you, I guess. Hmm. Well, sorry. uh, Sorry. I'm wandering. Sorry. So as a result, I think we forget how much better our musculoskeletal knowledge is compared to most people. And musculoskeletal complaints are the number one complaints in medicine. Mm. They're the number one complaint. So, yeah, we're trying to figure out how to increase our OMM down here already, and I've only been there a few months. Wow. Okay. Now, do you have a special modality that you always go to, or you kind of just try everything, or how do you approach your patient? Um. In terms of like labeled, like if uh, if you, you this is LAS, this is muscular MET, whatever, not. I probably fall in mostly like LAS BLT territory. Okay. If we were to stick with hard labels, um, I don't know. It's, it's I'm sure you do this too. I've seen you. I've seen you treat people. You kind of start to blend stuff together when right. you do it enough. You don't necessarily like, I only do muscular or uh, muscle energy therapy. That's the only technique I use. 
I mean, not even Dr. Lisa, the muscle energy lady does strictly muscle energy on her patients. You know, she mixes and blends in other things in a fantastic way. And so I think a lot of us end up doing that. So I probably fall mostly LAS, BLT territory, but to call it just that I think would be misleading to any, any true LAS or BLT person would probably be mad at me for saying that if they saw me work on someone. Yes. I find that when I'm teaching students or if I'm treating in front of students and they're asking me what I'm doing, I'm like, well, it's kind of a little BLT counter strain, you know, like all these different things mixed together. Yep. Difficult to explain, but I was like, you can feel it. And then the patient feels better. It's wonderful. I was treating, uh, I was treating Dr. Wilkie once and uh, you know, he, he tries hard to not talk when someone's working on him. He tries to just be in the moment, which is Mm -hmm. hard for him. I love Scott, but he's a brainy dude and he has a hard time just letting things happen without thinking. And uh, afterward, he looked at me really funny and he said, that was a proprioceptive approach. I said, yeah. He said, what do you call it? And I'm like, I don't know. It's like BLT-ish. He's like, yeah, but it's not. I'm like, I know, Scott, shut <laughs> up. It's fine. If any of you know Dr. Wilkie, he's a fantastic person to learn yes. from. He's a great guy. Yes, he is. Uh, do you do you have any other significant uh, patient encounters where you used OMT and it was just an amazing? I literally <laughs> last week, this that question couldn't have come at a better time. Um, I had a guy come in to see me. Incidentally, he was a same day hospital follow up, which is not supposed to be a same day appointment, but you know we see people when we can. Um, he is a above knee amputation patient who had his leg amputated last June, has a little bit of phantom limb pain, not a ton of trouble from that, but he had gone into the ER for stump pain. He was having this cramping, stabbing, tight pain in his left stump, coming down his thigh, down around into the residual femur that he has left, where they've wrapped soft tissue around. They went in, did a... Did a bunch of labs, did some x-rays, did a CT, and really nothing showed up. Um, the x-ray had a subtle abnormality that the radiologist thought was likely post-surgical, but they couldn't definitively rule out early osteomyelitis. But the labs and the rest of his work did not indicate osteomyelitis at all. Hmm. Um, no indication. So he came in to see us for hospital follow-up, and I'm looking at his leg, and I'm listening to the story, and I'm like, thinking to myself, okay, so when they chop off the femur, you know, they remove the whole lower leg, go through the, go through the knee joint, leave the femoral knuckle, amputated a little bit above the femoral knuckle on him. And then they still have a lot of the residual upper leg musculature that's no longer attached to the tibia. So what do they do with it? Well, they wrap it around the stump of the femur to provide a soft tissue cushion. So it's not just bone on skin because that'll erode right through skin. Mm. And they just kind of, sew everything back together and patch it up. I looked at his op note and it doesn't say anything about what muscles went where just residual soft tissue wrapped around stump. I'm like, Oh, that's helpful. So I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, okay, well, if all of his proprioception is shot because all of his muscles no longer attached to the place that he grew up with them attached to, he has no sensation or proprioceptive signaling coming from the lower half of his leg. His motion generation system, you know, the motor cortex, is probably really confused about what in the world to do with all those muscles. So I'm assuming, I took it just a guess, 
the muscles are probably spasming because they're trying to stabilize something that no longer exists to be stabilized. So they just pull harder and harder and harder, trying to create stability in an area where stability no longer exists to be an option. So I had him lay on the table and I did my proprioceptive, whatever it is, stuff. And uh, he went from a seven out of 10 in pain to a three to four and 10 out of pain immediately. Wow. He got back up on his, on his good leg. He stood up and holding on to his crutches and he said, it's better. The cramping's better. I don't, what did you do? I said, oh, I just tried to treat some of the residual muscles. I think they're, because they're not where they're supposed to be, they're kind of confused and cramping trying to secure stuff. And I helped them to unravel. He said, oh, well, it feels a lot better. <laughs> Great. So I don't know what's going to happen with that yet. I mean, I've seen him once, but I'm going to have him follow up and see what happens. And if it works out, he's, uh, he's interested in being in a case report for trying to help other amputees with residual stump pain post-amputation. I always had an interest in that as well, to seeing if we could do anything to relieve their discomfort that, you know, a lot of them, I don't know, they, they make them like gabapentin or something, but nothing really seems to work. And so. Yeah, it's, it's not phantom limb pain. It's not pain in the leg oh. that's not there. It's pain in his residual body part. Got like, it. Okay. My thigh hurts, not my tibia that's gone my actual thigh is cramping i see I so see. we'll see i don't know what's gonna happen okay well you'll have to keep us posted maybe we can do an, another episode happy to help if it works for him i would love to share it far and wide so somebody smarter than me can explain what just happened and why all right and then i guess uh the final question that usually dr green likes to ask is about uh what would you tell what advice would you give to a medical student that's going into their first day of OMIM lab or the 30th day? Because we've like with my class and with a few other people that I've talked with, you've got students in the top 10, 20 percent that are gung ho, going to do it. You can tell that they love it. And then you've got on the other end that don't want to have anything to do with OMM. And then you got kind of the middle group that kind of you know, they, they haven't really seen pros and cons or, you know, they can't, haven't really commit to it and they're kind of dragging their feet as they're going into lab. What would you advise them or tell them? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm going to say something that in a lot of circles of OMM would be severely unpopular. Um, when you're in class, there a lot of what you're going to hear is going to sound like magic. And most of it isn't. Most of it isn't. There is a lot of truth behind the things we're talking about. There's there's a reason there are three separate, entirely separate and related specialties that have existed for a long time. You know, chiropractic care, uh, massage therapy, physical therapy. They have existed and addressed the same things for a long time because there is something that we're doing that's functional in there. There is something that works. There's something that matters. Some of the explanations you're going to hear won't make sense right away because you don't have the context to put it in to make it make sense. Right. Some of it is going to sound like there's going to be a, some stuff that sounds magical that frankly is, in my opinion, magical nonsense. You know, if I had a, a friend of mine who teaches at a school, I won't say where, so I don't offend anyone, but they had a, one of their OMM professors come in and telling the students to feel the motion from the ocean to the east and the stillness of the mountains to the west. 
and to find the balance in themselves and the balance in the patient and to address that balance in their body. Now, to me, that's pure ma magical nonsense. Is there something to it? Maybe. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But that would have turned me off completely. Yeah. If you can, if you hear that stuff, try to tune that out and focus on the science instead. If that stuff resonates with you and it lets you help people, go for it. But for me, it very much did the opposite. Thankfully, at MSU, we didn't really have that. For the people in your 30th day, you know, you may be starting to see some of the things we're talking about. Maybe you've treated a classmate and you saw the change in their body and you could feel it. You have to remember your classmates are otherwise generally pretty healthy people. It's not that it's going to make a big change for someone who's already healthy, but for someone who's sick in the hospital, those small changes add up. For someone who's chronically ill and has been dealing with it for years in their in their life outside of the clinic, it's going to add up. For your factory worker or your construction worker who's beat their body up the last 15 years, doing inappropriate motions, lifting things the wrong way, lifting heavy loads repetitively they shouldn't lift. If you can help them in some small way, you're going to make a much bigger difference in your life, in their life, than you might appreciate in the beginning. And it's worth it. And even if you don't get the skill for some reason, if you don't remember, if you don't, it doesn't make sense to you, it doesn't fit, remember that you have colleagues to whom it does make sense and that you can refer that patient to someone that even if you can't help them in that moment, there might be a nearby friendly specialist who can. Same as a cardiologist for someone's heart. There might be someone nearby who can help that patient in a way that you can't, but you know who can. And there's no shame in that. Not everybody's good at everything. Don't ask me to do surgery. I won't. Don't ask <laughs> me to do it. But you ask me to try and work on somebody's back pain. Yeah, I'll do what I can. So I appreciate you taking the time and sharing your story. And then maybe we'll do something in the future. See how things are turning out with that patient of yours. Yeah, I will. Well, I'll definitely text you, Mandy. I don't, <laughs> Dr. Robinson. Uh, you can decide <laughs> what to do from there, depending on how it goes. If you never hear back from us, it's because it didn't work and I missed something. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. Take care of yourself. Good luck, everybody. Okay. Bye-bye. Being open to osteopathic medicine after a changed trajectory of his future out of the military, Dr. Schneider discovers his natural talent at OMT. He views OMM as a science and not as a magical form of treatment. He encourages those that do not utilize the tool to know that there are people they can refer to to include OMT in their patient care. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Please leave a review. And if you have any questions or would like to leave a message for me or Dr. Schneider, please click the episode link. See you in the next episode.